Well, good morning, Redeemer. So good to be with you. Now, how are we going to top oatmeal out of a treasure box and a gold bar hunt in the backyard? I don't know. But we do have God's word before us that Matt took us to already, Exodus 19, and we do hear about treasure and other wonderful things about our identity in the Lord. Let this wondrous gospel break in afresh. Go down deep. Seep into the bottom corners of your lives, the dark spaces, the, the hurting places. Let this be balm for your soul in discovering anew, or for the first time today, who you are in Christ before the Lord. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out from the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say, to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Oh, dear Lord God, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, great three in one, like Israel of old, we need you as we are in our wilderness spaces, to give us grace in all kinds of ways today. Particularly, Lord, we need the grace to know who and whose we are. Grant us clearer, deeper, stronger, more lasting sense of our identity in Christ, in whose name we pray and for whose name's sake we hope. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as most of you know, I'm, I'm more of a baseball guy than a Broadway guy, but I have seen two Broadway shows. Fran and I went on a short New York trip together about seven years ago, and uh, I offered an, a Yankee Stadium outing. That was shot down, but we did do two Broadway shows. I saw Wicked with her, kind of the starter, classic kind of starter show, and it was great. But the second one I loved even more, Anastasia. Not many people have seen Anastasia. I loved it. I loved the way they did the scenery and the stage, and they turned the stage into this open rail car. It was amazing that moved around and kind of spun around and changed directions. It's, it was stunning. But Anastasia, right, is this story of this young girl growing into being a young woman, trying to discover who she really is, and is she, in fact, a child of royalty, and, and the whole play sort of evolves around that. And, and of course, Anastasia, right, that name means daughter of resurrection, from Anastasis, 
resurrection. And it got me thinking about our gospel identity. You, who are we? Right there in the front of your bulletin, I mean right at the front of the sermon section, I've, I've got for you, you know, just Jesus' sense of identity. As he was in the upper room, right? As he, as he was there getting ready to enter into his passion, what does John say about him and that experience that John remembers inspired by the Holy Spirit to keep this all for us, that, that Jesus knew some things about himself, right? That he had come from the Father and that he was going back to the Father and that the Father had in fact put all things into his hands and under his power. That identity, right? allowed him to enter into all that was coming and particularly allowed him and moved him, compelled him, as it were, to, to move forward in, in service and love, to wash the disciples' feet, to gird himself with a towel and to take a basin of water and begin to wash their feet and wipe it off with the towel that was even wrapped around himself. Identity was everything for Jesus. It's, it's everything for us. Think about the way sort of Scripture just lays out for us, just, just, just pours out to us, right? This beautiful wonder of who we are before the Lord in Christ. Let's work from back to front. What does Revelation say about us? We'll be the saints gathered without number around the throne of the Lamb, worshiping in eternal light for the Lamb himself will be our light. No more new moon, no more sun, no more stars, just the Lamb being the light and we'll be forever singing His praises that He is worthy of honor and praise. And, 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 and because that's what, who we are, right? Who are we? Peter says that we are people born again to a living hope according to the great mercies of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In effect, he's saying we're all Anastasias. We're all daughters or sons of resurrection. Who are we? Paul told the Ephesian church that we are the body of Christ, that we're the bride of Christ, that we're the building of Christ, living stones built upon the foundation of Jesus himself and the teachings of the apostles and holy scripture. Who are we? Paul told the Corinthian church, you're people of new creation. Old things passed, new things come. Who are we? Paul told the Romans that Matt led us through in the confession. We're actually people who need to know that we are dead to sin and alive to God and the Lord. Not so much on our record of any kind of lived out perfection, but this is what the gospel has made us who are dead to sin. No longer is it our master and alive to God in Christ. Who are we? Matthew says we're people of an alternative way of life, a, a counterculture, as Tim Keller liked to say about the Sermon on the Mount, inside-out people, upside-down people, forward-back people of the kingdom of God. Reaching back to the prophets, right? Who are we? Ezekiel and Jeremiah said we're people given new hearts with hearts of stone turned into hearts of flesh with our hearts now actually full of the very law of God and God's spirit. We're, we're sprinkled with clean water. We're cleansed. We're people who are given over to God's perfect and wondrous plans for our lives that can seek the prosperity of a broken world as people of his kingdom. 
Who are we? The wisdom literature says we're people, right in the Proverbs, who are married not to lady folly, though she may call to us and beckon us and woo us. We're people married to lady wisdom and embracing her. It's embracing Jesus, right, this imagery. Who are we, the psalmists say? People who know a good shepherd, who cares for us, who feeds and waters us, who anoints our heads with oil, who prepares tables for us even in the wilderness places, even in the presence of our enemies, who will walk with us and guide us even in the valley of the shadow of death to bring us all the way home to eternally be the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. And who are we, this Exodus passage says. We're people of this amazingly rich identity. Isn't it interesting, the context of this passage, right? It's just the third new moon since they came out of Egypt. On the one hand, this is very short after the plagues and after Passover and after the Red Sea crossing and after, as Matt preached beautifully for us last week, manna starts to fall and water comes out of rocks even for them in desert places. So it's short after lots of amazing deliverance and care. But it's the beginning of right of they don't begin to know how long of a long, long wilderness journey. Interestingly, here in Exodus, this is the last place marker that you get. You've already gotten in our readings together, right, a lot of place markers. This is it. This is the last one in Exodus. And even the way the language comes, Hebrew scholars talk here about, there are no sort of classic uh, consecutive little markers, conjunctive markers here. This is just sort of set apart to say, you're out here at the wilderness. You're at this base of the mountain of God. It's scary. Moses has gone up from you. And right here, you're beginning a wilderness journey that's going to be, you don't know it yet, but 40 years And I want you to know, even as you're going to be badly broken and misled and misguided, and you're going to not trust me the way you ought, I want you to know this identity of who you are. Four pieces to this this morning, right? Who are we? We are people born, as it were, out on eagle's wings. Uh, Hebrew scholars talk about Robert Alter and others talk about uh, this wonder that this imagery is of eagles, right? The highest of the flying birds, the strongest, the, the mightiest of birds, right? Swooping in from on high with pinions outstretched, right? The imagery is not to go grab a fish out of a pond or, or to get a rodent up off the ground or a small you know, feline, right? But rather to take those pinions and swoop down from on high and deliver out a people, to rescue them. You know who loved this imagery of eagles, and he got it here, I'm sure, in part, was Tolkien, right? J.R.R. Tolkien, if you've read The Hobbit, if you've read The Lord of the Rings, he just has this fetish almost <laughs> about eagles, right? The eagles come in The Hobbit, right, and rescue the dwarves and Bilbo from the trees when the wolves are after them, the wargs are about to get them, right? In the Battle of the Five Armies, right near the end, it's the eagles that come and make all the difference there. In Lord of the Rings, right, it's Gandalf locked up in a tower out of things, and the eagle comes, the greatest of the eagles comes and rescues him from Saruman's tower, right, and brings him back into things. 
It's the eagles that come and even rescue Sam and Frodo from Mount Doom and Mordo and show up at the Battle of the Five Armies at the end of things to change everything, right? It's eagles. Tolkien loved this. Tolkien loved to talk about the eagles as imagery of eucatastrophe, of this power that comes from on high that swoops in to change surprisingly and wonderfully everything, not to bring destruction like a catastrophe, but to bring blessing out of nowhere. Who are we? See, Tolkien said, actually, it's the use of the eagles and scholars, Tolkien scholars talk about, is that, you know, it's the use of the eagles, right, that almost most more than anything makes his work distinctively Christian. Because who are we? We are people like Israel of old who get this God to swoop down when everything was lost at the cross of Jesus Christ and rescue us. The eagle becomes, as it were, a phoenix who actually goes into the ashes and rises again. And we are all delivered, born out as on eagle's wings by him. That's who you are. You know, when I first started ministering early on in seminary, Fran and I worked at, at um, First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi. We'd drive down from Jackson on the weekends, about three hours. We'd do things with youth. I worked with youth and work in the church on Sunday, have a youth time on Sunday evenings and an evening worship service and drive back a long way to Jackson that night. Those were full, long weekends. But one of the things that I remember about the youth, the parents of those youth, right, as we were there in the early to mid-80s, latter 80s even, with them, is that, is that these children, right, were children, many of whom who had been born or were very young when Hurricane Camille came. 1969, before there was Katrina in the early 2000s, there was Camille on the Gulf Coast. And the greatest of storms that hit sort of the Gulf Coast ever just racked ruin. And you'd hear these parents talk about, maybe I was pregnant during Camille, or we had this little baby during Camille, and we were sheltered up, and we thought our lives were over. And the winds howled, and the storms came, and there wasn't a lot of warning the way there is in later times, right? And we just bunkered in, and we begged God to save us. And they'd talk about that storm and the rescue of God in it, like it had just happened yesterday. And this is like 1988 then, right? You know? We're people who have been rescued from the greatest of storms, our own guilt, our own shame, the judgment that is due, all of our failures to obey God and to follow him. And we've been rescued out of that. Just like Israel was rescued from the, by the plagues and, and the, Lord's, the, the, the Red Sea crossing and delivered out there. We are to be people consumed with that. Do you know this is who you are? Do you know this about yourself? You're people born out on eagle's wings. Secondly, consider that we're a people who are a treasured possession. The language here, Matt, Matt's children's sermon was beautiful because the language used here literally is of a royal treasure, of a king's treasure. It's used about David and all the treasure he stored up. Chronicles uses this language about David storing up treasure to give over to his son Solomon for the building of the temple. It's a king's treasure. 
That's who we are. The King of kings and Lord of lords treasures us. We're his special things that he doesn't lock away in a treasure box or keep in a vault somewhere that he puts out on display as trophies of his grace and his mercy. That's who we are. Think about what scripture says elsewhere. And the, Moses talks about later in Deuteronomy that we are, oh, we are the Lord's own possession. David talks about in the Psalms, that we are the very apple of his eye, the center of what he wants to protect and prize and even see all the world through. That's who we are. C.S. Lewis talks about this. I, I use this often in weddings and in wedding homilies that he, he's writing about marriage and he says, you know what the greatest delight of the bride is? that her bridegroom delights in her. Her great delight is that the bridegroom is delighting in her. Our great delight, our identity, is that God delights in us as his treasured people. Jesus is our bridegroom who delights in us as a bridegroom coming forth from his chamber, the prophets talk about looking forward to his coming. This is who you are. Do you know this? See, the thing is, if we're not living in this identity, celebrating it, remembering it the way people remembered Camille and other things, if we're not just, just treasuring not only a deliverance, but that we are God's treasure, that he delights in us this way, that we're the apple of his eye, the center of his joy and what he puts on display right, if we're not seeing ourselves this way, the alternative is what? We'll keep scrabbling about trying to be treasured people. We'll spend all of our energies trying to make ourselves treasured in God's sight or the sight of others or, or our own sight. Very, very interesting. Um, you know, I'm going in about two weeks to a celebration of, of my baseball team in college. Our, our great teammate, Ron Darling, uh, is being uh, inducted into the College Baseball Hall of Fame in Kansas City in a couple weeks, and we're having a reunion, and all the Yale baseball team around those years is coming together. It's going to be great, but guys are passing around pictures online, and these, these email threads are going, and, and my class, class of 84, began sort of posting all these pictures last week, and, and there's a lot of them in there, and I've tried to show Fran in bed the other night, and she just kind of yawned, you know, like, wow, that's great, Paul. No, 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 but it was this game, honey, and this game. There's one of the pictures that happens to have one of my best friends from the team on first base. His dad must have taken this picture, because he's on first base, and it's sort of taken from behind on plate, and I batted after Mark, and I'm up at the plate, and, and I'm seeing it, and I'm remembering, that's my best game, honey. That's a picture of my best game. You know why? Because I, I can see the wrap on my left hand. I got hit the day before by a pitch, and it swelled up like three times the size, and it had to be wrapped up. I didn't think I could even play, but what it made me do was just stand there and barely hold on to the bat and just swing easy, and I hit four rockets that day. Two doubles, a single, and a sacrifice flight. Not that I'm not focusing on that or anything. And Fran's just yawning, you know, like, I'm the only person that knows that, but boy, is it special to me, right? But it reminded me of things, right? I had red hair. I was fit at one time. But most of all, it reminded me, I spent my whole life scrabbling to be treasured 
by being a low-level Division I baseball player. And now nobody even cares. There's a picture of my best game. Nobody, nobody cares. <laughs> Anastasia. I preached the sermon at Presbytery. So this is the second time, different version. But I preached it on Friday night, and I, I used the Anastasia illustration in the beginning the way I did with you. And a friend came up to me afterward who'd been in my church in Austin. He's still an elder at Redeemer Austin. And he came up to me afterwards, Rick Bocock, and he said, Paul, I got to tell you something. When Candace and I first married, and we lived in Charlottesville, Virginia, long, long ago, and we had no money at all. You know, this is before even like VCRs and DVDs and stuff. And he said, there was going to be a film showing at the public library of Anastasia. And so we went to it. And after the film, the real Anastasia was there. She was in her 90s. And she stood up and gave a little presentation. And Candace and I timidly just came up and talked to her afterward. And I don't know why I, I did, but I asked her, what is all that meant to you? Because she told them that, right, that, that she still didn't really even know, and perhaps maybe there was more evidence against her being Anastasia of the royal family than not. Right? And you know what she said, Rick said? She said, I spit on it all. <laughs> Thick Russian act. I spit on it all. All my life, worrying about if that's who I was or not. That's the alternative to knowing that you are this treasured possession and resting in that and, and living out of that. Who are we? People born out on eagle's wings. People who are God's treasured possession. Thirdly, we are his kingdom of priests. His royal priesthood. What do priests do? any priest of any religious system, right? They basically do three things. They celebrate worship and, and try to make you think this god or this goddess is worthy of worship. Secondly, they, they make a path for you to, to come before this god if there are sacrifices that have to be made to appease the god or goddess or if there's favor that you have to, to win. They, they, they lay out that for you. They teach you. And they show you this path to approach the God or goddess, right? And the third thing they do is they try to make this God or goddess accessible and knowable in the world. We are privileged, like Israel of old, to be God's priest. They had Aaron and his sons who did special kind of priestly things to write, make worship, wonderful to build the tabernacle to do the ceremonies of what's coming we'll learn further in exodus about this they they offered the sacrifices and they you know showed the way right to to approach god and and they tried to make god visible by the teachings and the life that they live as his priest his his special people right but what God is saying to Israel right here, right at the beginning, before even the tabernacle is constructed, you yourselves are all my priests. You're actually at my kingdom of priests. 
And we are much more that in the time of the new covenant, right? We're our great high priest, one greater than Aaron, all of his sons, right? Comes and makes the once for all sacrifice and is sat down now at the right hand of God. There's no more of that work to do. There's no more favor to be earned, no more sacrifice to be given. But we, Peter, takes up this same language right, right here from Exodus and says that we use for our confession of faith today. Who are we? We're still this royal priesthood, this kingdom of priests. Why? Because we get to show forth by celebrating the wonder of who our God is in worship, by celebrating that the deliverance that was made, the bearing up on eagles, right, is for what purpose? To be brought to God himself. I've borne you on eagles' wings to bring you to myself. We get to celebrate that in our worship. We get to point to the sacrifice of Jesus and the favor, the unmerited grace and mercy of God and Jesus. And then we get to live as his people, as living sacrifices in his name in the world to, to demonstrate who he is to a watching world. We get to be his priests. I need to apologize for something that I've done a lot in my ministry. I, I, I don't know Redeemer long enough yet. I'm getting to know Redeemer here. I've certainly been guilty of this. I, I think Redeemer might be pretty good at this with our pastors and our elders. But, but I just want to apologize for my own ministry. So much of my own ministry has sort of been shaped in my own mind is I want you to come and watch me and the other pastors do things, say things, teach things, and I really want you to be moved by that. And that's church. What church is, is the kingdom of priests, all of you, being encouraged and fed and nurtured by this gospel and entering into this wonderful worship together to go out and make your whole life an expression of worship and praise to God. You're his priests. You're his people that you get to celebrate before a watching world, to point to his perfect sacrifice, to a favor that we don't earn, that we are freely given. You're the ones who get to, by being his living sacrifices in the world, show forth his glory. I want to encourage you today. This is who you are. Consider that process, that in your own prayers this week. Maybe as you gather as a community group, maybe as you talk about as a family. What's the priestly thing God wants me to do today? How does he want me to engage for the love of the world? Flannery O'Connor wrote about the Southern novelist, Catholic Christian writer, wrote about, you know, she said at the end of her life, she said, you know, my work has really been about writing stories that talk about the realm of grace breaking into all the territory of evil and the evil one. She saw herself as like a little priest writing these stories of unique grace, eucatastrophe grace, eagle's wings kind of grace, coming into odd and difficult and very broken places, foreign territory. Where does God want to write those stories? Through you and through me. Who are we? People born out on eagle's wings, people who are the king's royal treasure, 
people who are actually his whole kingdom of priests. And, and lastly, who are we? We're his holy nation. Not America, the church in America, and all the world, not nation state Israel, the church in Israel and Palestine and America and all the world. That's who the holy nation is. Even Israel of old, as it was sort of the church forming under scaffolding, as it were, as one writer likes to talk about. Israel of old, right, was this mixed multitude. Egyptians joined them. Others came with them on this journey. They were always this blended, mixed group, but together they were this one holy nation, not because of the perfection of their actions by any stretch we've already seen, right? They're grumbling and complaining in their lack of faith, but because God set them apart by his grace and mercy to be his holy, unique, other kingdom kind of people in the world. Whenever holiness gets mentioned, we typically get very antsy in the church. And, and rightly so, because I'm not very holy in myself. But God's vision for me and for you is to make us his holy people, his other people, his kingdom people, his righteous people in Christ, living in this world as a whole other kind of nation as his church. I think the first Sunday I was here, candidating even, I told you the story about this robe, that this is my grandfather's robe that he preached in uh, Sunday by Sunday, uh, Joseph Dar. I haven't told you sort of the backstory of that a little bit. And the backstory is my aunt Blanche Ellen, who is now with Jesus, would have dreams. She would have visions. And, uh, and sometimes they were crazy and not true. <laughs> but sometimes they were crazy and, and, and bizarrely accurate. And she had this dream. My mother was pregnant. My mother had had multiple miscarriages, hadn't had any children, been able to come to term. And my mother was newly pregnant and, uh, and told Blanche Ellen, and Blanche Ellen dreamed my aunt that, Ruby Joe, you're going to have this baby. It's going to be a boy, and he's going to have red hair, though nobody in our family had red hair for generations. And all that came true, <laughs> amazingly. But what Blanche Ellen didn't tell anybody was that part of the dream, too, was that the red-headed little boy would grow up to be a pastor like her father and my mom's father, Daddy Joe. And, uh, and so Blanche Hill, when my grandfather died, when she was helping her mom clean out their house and my grandmother was moving to another space, um, she came on this robe and she decided quietly she would squirrel this away just in case Paul became a preacher. And so on the day I graduated from seminary, my mom and dad came to be with Fran and I and Mary Fran, our little baby girl, and, and uh, my aunt and uncle came, Blanche Ellen and Billy, and, and after we went out to eat in the ceremonies and we were back in the apartment, Blanche Ellen brought out this little package, and she said, Paul, here's your gift. 
and it was this robe. And she said, what I didn't tell, you've heard the story that I dreamed about you being a redheaded boy, is I also dreamed that you would be a pastor. And I always wanted to keep this, and I never told anybody because I didn't want to put any pressure on you. But now here it is. Wow. My aunt's visions could be kooky. You might even say, well, that one was kooky too, Paul, you know. <laughs> yeah, it was. The thing is, is that God's vision for you, which is not kooky, maybe kooky in the world's eyes, will absolutely come true that he is calling you to be his holy people. And he will see it through. He is more committed to our holiness, infinitely more, than the best Christian among us is to his or to hers. See, what we're called to be is people who respond to all of this, hearing his voice, keeping covenant with him, obeying, and, and that's by grace too. I love what Augustine said of old, Lord, grant, please, little Lord, grant what you command and then command whatever you will. We're just thrown back at the end of it all onto the mercies of God, onto his grace, onto his sufficiently alone. Lord, help me to know I'm a delivered person. I'm a treasured person. I'm a priestly person. I'm a holy person in Christ and his perfect holiness and a growing holiness in me because that's your vision and your purpose for me. So Lord, please help me, Lord, to hear your voice and to keep covenant with you, to obey Please help me, Lord, not to hear the word and look at it like a person looking in the mirror and doing nothing with it. Please help me, O oh Lord, to hear and to take it in and to live. Israel of old would struggle with this. We can struggle with this. But God's grace is sufficient even in that struggle. This is who we are. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this identity in Christ. Thank you for how you gave it to Israel of old. Thank you for how you give it to us now. Thank you, Lord. Lord, may we live in this identity, love in this identity, be secure in this identity, but be people awakened to holiness and service and priestly engagement in the world and and Lord, may we hear your voice anew even as we come to your table now and believe and follow. For some of us, Lord, that may be a first time thing. Lord, may this be the day of salvation coming to us today, if that's where we are. If it's a call back today, Lord, meet us where we are. Give us afresh this identity, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.